Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. is one of those wonderfully mundane things that's so common that it seems like it couldn't possibly be interesting. Like many things we take for granted, though, tea has a long, complex, and sometimes violent history that's more important to world events than one might think. Today, we'll start with our oldest records of the drink. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. Hi. And we're going to be talking about tea today. We are. Which I'm actually really excited to do because it's one of those topics that kind of, it doesn't sound necessarily that interesting. Yeah. Until you realize how much stuff is actually tied up in this one plant and our consumption of it, mostly for leisure. Yeah, I feel like it's a really cozy topic. Right. And it being, you know, the middle of the winter Mm kind of seems like a nice nice topic to go with yeah this is not gonna remain cozy just to give you a heads up (laughs) (laughs) no i figured it probably wouldn't stay that way but you know you know i'm feeling cozy right now with my cup of tea and my pajama pants (laughs) yeah we're 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 both drinking tea while we record this we are actually technically we're not both drinking tea Um, oh what i'm drinking right now is not tea because tea is only from one plant and really this is uh what we would call an herbal tea which is Actually, it, it contains no tea whatsoever. I'm learning so much already. <laughs> All teas are from the exact same plant. Uh, it doesn't matter that. what color the tea is. You know, your green tea, your white tea, your black tea. All of those are from one specific plant, the tea tree. And if it doesn't have actual tea in the ingredients list, it's not technically tea. It's an so- infused beverage, which, you know... You can infuse just about anything. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good, but... So my quote-unquote tea mm. is definitely not tea then. Is there no white tea in yours? Uh, I'm I not sure. I think there's white tea in the blend that you're drinking right now. All I know is that like the sales lady was like, there's chocolate and peppermint in it. And I was like, sold. <laughs> <laughs> no, so... I, I think there was white tea in there as well. Okay. Um. The other thing to watch out for is if it's like naturally not caffeinated, mm-hmm. definitely has no tea in it because tea, like the tea leaf has a fair amount of caffeine in it, actually. Right. It's it's as much of as much as 3% of the physical leaf is caffeine. Mm. Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty potent. But that difficulty with nomenclature about calling things tea that isn't actually tea kind of clouds our understanding actually of where tea starts off because people have been drinking tea for so long Mm -hmm. that the word was synonymous with infused beverages for a long time as well where you get records of people drinking what they'd call tea but it's not necessarily the actual tea plant that they're infusing the leaves of okay so that being said uh tea goes back to southern china thousands of years uh, the first record I have here is of someone uh, named Emperor Shen Nong, 2737 BCE. Supposedly, he was taking a nap during a long journey <laughs> beside this tree. And Shen Nong had actually mandated that uh, any water that he drank uh, needed to be boiled first to make sure that it was safe, which is incredibly forward thinking for someone that lived mm-hmm. almost 5,000 years ago. Yeah, for sure. And as he's sleeping, a leaf from this tree floats down into the boiling water, unnoticed by his, you know, his servants. 
And he drinks some and he's like, wow, this is amazing. Wow. And that's where tea comes from. Cool. Of course, that's not where tea comes from. <laughs> but like, that, that's one of the great things about Chinese history is a lot of things have very, very ancient origin stories that a lot of times don't necessarily have much going in the way of truthfulness, but certainly there's an element of truth sort of hidden within those stories. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this this emperor is the same guy that has, you know, the, the beginnings of Chinese medicine attributed to him and is supposedly the first person to introduce agriculture to China. And, and obviously this one person didn't do all of these things. Mm-hmm. But what it tells us is that early Chinese culture saw the drinking of tea as being kind of on the same level as some of those really fundamental pieces of civilization yeah he found that the tea was a a stimulant a restorative he believed that it cured poisons to the point where you know he's he's trying to figure out chinese medicine he would mix up compounds and if they were poisonous he would drink tea to counteract the effects of that poison oh really again not true at all yeah (laughs) but tea, tea is not an antidote to basically anything no but that's one common thing you'll find when we're talking about tea very early on is it's it's used uh medicinally not necessarily as a a luxury good or or just a beverage for kind of enjoying they're looking for specific applications you know aiding in digestion or fending off sleepiness or you know what have you uh as a sort of a justification for drinking it i did find another origin story which was pretty great Mm -hmm. a lot later on someone named bodhidharma who was the founder of Chan Buddhism. Um, And he's the guy who first trained Shaolin monks in uh, combat as a form of meditation. So kind of the founder of Shaolin Kung Fu. Right. There's a story that he decided to meditate by staring at a wall for nine years straight. And after seven years, he got sleepy (laughs) and he fell asleep and he was so angry at himself that he cut off his own eyelids so he couldn't fall asleep again and threw them on the ground. And where his eyelids fell, that's where the first tea tree grew up. What a graphic story. Well, I I mean, the idea being like, you know, the tea leaves are kind of eyelid shaped and Mm -hmm. also tea keeps you awake and keeps you from falling asleep after seven years, I guess. I mean, I get his frustration. If he got seven years in, he's well past the halfway point. Yeah. That's uh... so close yet so far. <laughs> yeah. Some of the stories that come up around these, this stuff are a little more far fetched than other ones. But, you know, again, tea has this really ritual framework that always seems to fit into even things around um, how you harvest tea. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's relatively straightforward in terms of, of just agriculture, right? It's actually a, a full on tree. Like if you let tea just grow wild it turns into a tree that's like a good 50 feet tall mm-hmm. like it's a it's a massive plant so what they'll do is they'll just constantly prune them down to keep them really low to the ground really easy to pick leaves and then you know they only they only pluck the top leaves and there's this there's this tradition that's existed for thousands of years that all you pluck are the top two leaves and a bud and that's all you pluck hmm and those are considered to be the uh, finest quality leaves. And anything plucked further down is considered basically trash. Like a lot of times they would actually really? use it to to package it to keep the good tea from being <sighs> bruised in uh, in transport. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and you get stories about people um, convincing monkeys to harvest tea for them by like getting them to climb up in tea trees before they realize they could prune them down. And making them really angry until they would grab fistfuls of tea leaves and throw them down at the people and then collect the leaves. Oh, wow. There was never any actual, you know, record of this actually happening. It was yeah. all hearsay kind of stuff. But there's always been like every aspect of, of the tea and and uh, its, its harvest, its growth, its, its uh, collection, its processing, and its consumption. It's always this very ritualized kind of symbolic process, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But there's there's this funny thing that, that happens when human beings find a stimulant that actually has a, a, a real measurable effect on them. They, they tend to take it and, <laughs> number one, 
just really push things and see how far it goes. Like really yeah. try and learn as much as they can about it. And then number two, try and like find reasons to justify its consumption. Mm-hmm. Like this whole sort of medicinal aspect of tea, you know, oh, it's a diuretic. So, you know, it'll help you. Uh, if you're feeling, you know, bloated or whatever, it can help you. Uh, if you're having indigestion, it'll help you out. Oh, if you're, if you're, um, you know, it, it stimulates the intellect. So, you, you know, if you're working on something really difficult uh, intellectually, you should drink mm-hmm. tea to keep yourself sharp. And it's kind of like, you know, if you guys just like drinking tea, you can go ahead and, <laughs> and drink some. And and the thing is, in 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 China, thousands of years ago, they're a pretty long ways away from where coffee originates. So they don't really have access to any other caffeine. Yeah. And caffeine's kind of an interesting stimulant in that there are very few downsides to it for most people. Mm-hmm. It, it gives you a lot of benefits with, with very little drawback other than maybe a little bit of a headache if you cut yourself off immediately. And even that doesn't take that long to go away. Yeah, that's true. But once they figured out how to prune the trees down to a manageable height, it turns out that you can actually harvest new leaves every one to two weeks. Like it grows quite okay. quickly throughout the year. I was going to say, yeah, that's pretty fast. And it's basically March through September or October, depending on where it is climate wise. So it's got a relatively long mm-hmm. season. Yep, And you can plant them relatively close together. So all in all, it's a pretty friendly crop to to, to harvest. And then what they would do, just like any other any other agricultural crop, they'd go through and collect seeds from the plants that produced the fastest growing leaves, the biggest leaves, the ones that tasted the best, and that's what they would use for the harvest or for the planting the next year. And so they'd slowly kind of refine their tea crop each year. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, you know, if you just, if you just kind of leave the leaves alone. They get kind of bruised and they oxidize kind of the same way that, uh, you know, uh, an apple that's been cut up turns brown, right? Mm-hmm. Any exposure to oxygen kind of kind of tends to darken things. And you'll see this referred to as fermentation in a lot of places. So, you know, when people are talking about oolong tea, they'll say, well, it's half fermented tea. Uh, no, it's, it's actually oxidization. It's turning brown. Right. And for a very long time, the like a black tea what we would think of as a standard tea like an orange pico that was a that was a bruised tea that had not been processed quickly enough to keep it from staying as green tea okay. it was considered inferior in china green tea was really considered the most desirable version of that and it was by far the most common one it turns out if you steam the leaves really quickly mm-hmm. um it keeps it green and fresh and then you kind of uh roll it out you dry it and for a very long time, tea wasn't terribly widely enjoyed. It was mostly for this medicinal purpose and even then kind of for higher ranking people in general mm-hmm. uh, until you get to the Tang Dynasty, which is around the year 618 to 907, where tea really exploded in popularity throughout Chinese society. And at that point, it was actually not really processed in the way we'd think of today it wasn't you know loose leaf tea uh it was actually pounded into cakes and it would be kind of shipped around as these hard bricks of tea okay Uh, it would be packed really really tight and what you would do at that point is uh either break some off grind it up with a mortar and pestle Mm -hmm. and and infuse it in hot water or some people would actually just eat it they would bite off pieces of these they would eat it yeah they would bite off wafers and it would be a little more stimulating in that form because you're getting a lot more caffeine yeah that would be pretty potent yeah but you know it travels a lot more easily than loose leaf tea which is kind of more delicate right Mm -hmm. and that's the form in which tea ends up spreading to uh korea vietnam japan all of these places that have similar but definitely separate tea traditions of their own mm-hmm. um, as well as to india for to some extent although india never really picked up on it as a as a luxury good it was always kind of considered a, a medicinal uh, plant uh, in india in korea and japan especially eventually like centuries later they both started developing these tea ceremonies which are like really, really complicated, really mm-hmm. precise, um, and have a lot of Buddhist symbolism kind of rolled into them. And I mean, those wouldn't really come around until about the 15th century. So tea had been enjoyed by sort of the, the higher classes up until then. 
just as a drink. But yeah, the, the tea ceremony ends up becoming a, a huge part of tea culture. You've been to Japan a few times. Have you ever actually done a full tea ceremony? Um, I've taken part in one, but it was a very short, kind of a small demonstration. It wasn't, I don't think, like a full... Yeah, there's a lot of different sort of levels of tea ceremony. Yeah. Um, The ones that they'll just kind of put on for people who have no idea what's going on are pretty simple. They're pretty Mm -hmm. fairly straightforward. To do a proper, like high tea ceremony Mm -hmm. not only does the person serving the tea need to know like every single step of the process like not even just you know how to prepare the tea how long is tea no they need to know like specific hand movements that go into moving your hand from one place to another to keep the, the, the kimono out of the way they have to be dressed a certain way the guests need to know the proper responses to things that the host says yeah the guests need to know the proper way to walk around in the room that needs to be a certain way for the tea ceremony like it's it's incredibly yeah. involved and and the amount of of uh social pressure that goes into that is is really interesting but it's it's so highly ritualized. Yeah, I definitely recall some of that, like the spinning the tea bowl and, mm-hmm. you know, different ways and taking certain sips and whatnot. It was very specific and mm-hmm. very deliberate. Yeah, and, and the tea that's used in, in those ceremonies, uh, reflecting that original introduction of tea to Japan is... Uh, is powdered tea. They 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 grind it up very very finely and and whisk it into hot water rather mm-hmm. than sort of steeping tea leaves like we tend to do uh, in the West. So throughout uh, a number of Asian countries, tea really enters into this sort of ritualistic place in society, and it's mm-hmm. not the, that it's not available to everyone to some extent, but understanding the ritual surrounding the tea and not just access to the tea itself is sort of a a marker of social standing the whole loose leaf thing starts during the song dynasty so uh 10th century and on kind of thing they realize that you know what it just kind of tastes better if you're using Mm -hmm. actual leaves and not these weird pounded cakes of of tea Mm -hmm. and i mean that format's going to stick around for basically until the 20th century Mm -hmm. so at that point, you get into things like grading the tea in terms of quality, size of leaf, the amount of residue that's included with it, things like that. And it becomes incredibly serious business within China itself. This is also sort of the period in time where Europeans are starting to make contact with China through the Silk Road, um, the, the luxuries trade. Mm-hmm. But interestingly enough, they don't really bring tea back with them. That's one of the things mm-hmm. that they don't really uh, carry back to Europe. And we're not entirely sure why. It's not as though they weren't aware of tea. Marco Polo wrote about tea when he spent time in China in the 13th century. So, Mm -hmm. you know... He was aware of it. Exactly. I kind of... I mean, this is is more speculation on my part after having read a bunch of of the stuff kind of surrounding this than, than anything. I don't have much to back this up. I, I kind of wonder if they just didn't know what to do with tea leaves. I'm sure somebody tried Maybe. bringing it back. Yeah. But the things that they're trading for at this point in time are things with really obvious value and with a certain level of rarity to them, which tea doesn't really have either of those things. Mm-hmm. It's not like silk where you can kind of go, oh, I can make luxurious clothing out of this. It's not like certain spices where... They can go, oh, I can use this to cover up the taste of my horrible rotting meat because this is before refrigeration. <laughs> uh, it's not like indigo coming from India India, where they're going, oh, I can make dyes out of this that we can't make with anything that exists in Europe. This is a fairly nondescript looking leaf mm-hmm. that turns black if you don't care for it properly. That is grown everywhere throughout southern China. So it's not terribly expensive. And the instructions are put this in hot water for a while and it'll help you feel less sleepy. I I don't know how valuable (laughs) that is to someone who has just spent lots of time traveling throughout the the Chinese desert to get to places where they can purchase other more obviously valuable luxury goods. Yeah. And I mean, you also have the issue of the Silk Road not necessarily being 
someone going from Venice all the way to China. It's it's a series of little hops, right, which travel through uh, Persia, which travel through uh, the Byzantine Empire, and you're gonna lose some some of that uh, instruction of how to make tea properly in translation there, right? Yeah, definitely. And those merchants are also making this same calculation, are Europeans going to buy this when it gets there? Mm -hmm. And a chest full of indigo? Absolutely. They're definitely going to buy that. A chest full of tea? That's a risky one. Yeah. I really don't know. Also, you have in the Arabian Peninsula, coffee, which is another caffeinated beverage which is far more readily available to the merchants who are kind of controlling the silk road Mm -hmm. and so with that in consideration why would they go all the way to china for this leaf when they could go to arabia for the coffee bean yeah the competition there doesn't really make a lot of sense i guess exactly the real introduction to europeans ends up being uh in the early 16th century portugal makes this uh, extended effort to figure out a way to tra- uh, to trade with China directly. With the fall of the, the Byzantine Empire to the Ottomans, they lose their connection through the Silk Road for trade, and they realize, well, we, we need this stuff somehow. And while Spain is sending uh, various explorers across the Atlantic to try and find a, a transoceanic uh, way of trading, the Portuguese are a little bit more practical about it and they go well we're pretty sure you can get around the bottom of africa from there you just sail up the other side across Mm -hmm. and you'll eventually get to china it's a longer route but you can also set up forts all the way along africa at which you can uh refuel and and uh replenish the the ships that are making this voyage the portuguese make really early inroads um in south china and they take along missionaries with them because part of the part of the funding that they get for these expeditions is from the church with a mandate to uh, spread the word of Christianity. So they kind of take them along to uh, allow them to get that trade started. Mm-hmm. And these Portuguese merchants and missionaries get to China and people are making them tea and they're like, hey, this stuff is actually pretty good. <laughs> the first actual tea to come back to to europe though is is uh in 1609 when there's a shipment of tea that goes from japan actually not china to the hague in the netherlands the Mm -hmm. the dutch were kind of hot on the heels of the portuguese in terms of of chinese trade setting up the dutch east india company in 1602 to try and consolidate their uh, resources in terms of the spice trade coming back from that area of the world it started a bit of a trend when it got there and kind of moved out from the Netherlands into France and Germany. But this is exactly the same time that coffee is getting really popular in those places. Yeah. And like we talked about, coffee is closer, coffee is cheaper. It's a um, bit more convenient in that way. Mm-hmm. Coffee travels a little bit better than mm-hmm. tea does. And there's just a lot less risk involved in bringing coffee from a, a much closer place. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a luxury in France and Germany, but mostly it caught on as a medicine for the most part. Again, for a lot of the same reasons as it was considered a medicine early in its history mm-hmm. in China. Everyone knew that when you drank tea, it helped you feel a little bit more awake. Yeah. Um, and it does have real effects on your digestion and things like that. The problem is... With stuff like this, it starts getting a lot more benefits ascribed to it than maybe are necessarily entirely truthful. Yeah, I can see how that might get overly hyped up easily. Yeah. <laughs> any any medicine in this era, anything that has any sort of noticeable effect on the body is going to have basically every cure known to man yeah. uh, attributed to it in some way. Yeah. Um, so a lot of stuff got treated with alcohol. <laughs> yeah and you still see that to some extent today especially with green teas Mm -hmm. where you get things like oh this is good for cancer it's like well eh, maybe i don't know about that there's the antioxidant kind of angle there but let's let's not be too hasty this is a bag of lipton's green tea um 
sometimes other medicines are a little bit more effective. But yeah, in, in Germany and France, it never really, it never really catches on. In Russia, Russia's interesting. Russia's, Russia has a way of popping up on this podcast in unexpected places. <laughs> Russia in the 17th century, because it's so big, it likes to consider itself a European country, but Russia had direct diplomatic relations with China because right. it does border with China. Mm-hmm. To the point that at the same time as Russia is sending envoys to France and to Austria and, and dealing with those nations as equals, they're also sending envoys to China and having them kowtow to the Chinese emperor in order to strike trade deals and work out military treaties to keep China from steamrolling them militarily. Yeah. In 1618, China sends a shipment of tea to uh, Tsar Michael I as uh, a gift, as a tribute. But the ambassador didn't like it. He tried it first (laughs) and he went, Tsar Michael's not going to want this. (laughs) And it set back tea in Russia by a good 50 years before it really caught on. They just didn't pass it on. Yeah. So this is, I mean, obviously before the ideas of like adding cream or sugar or like any additives to the tea were China thought of in China. It was it it was drunk black. There was Mm -hmm. nothing really added to it. The Europeans liked adding a little bit of milk and sugar to it. Mm -hmm. The, the tea that the, the Russian ambassador would have had would have been in the Chinese style. Right. There's a lot of really interesting stories actually with, um, beverages and their, acceptability cultural culturally because you know you don't consider things like that necessarily but when today but when coffee was introduced for example in in europe in the in the early 17th century there was a lot of outrage because coffee traditionally was a muslim drink right there's a very strict ban on alcohol in the muslim faith and people from Muslim countries tended to drink coffee instead in the exact same ways that people in Europe drank alcohol. Oh, okay. Um, it would it was generally a social drink. It tended mm-hmm. to be a little bit more common for men to enjoy them in public places than necessarily women. Uh, it was it was very much a social thing, and because of that, it had a reputation as being in in Europe as being, you know, it's 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 a heathen drink. <laughs> and it's just coffee and it's kind of today it seems a little bit ridiculous but yeah. it was to the point where they went to the pope and said is this okay really yes and the pope okayed it and said yeah no it's fine like you guys can drink some coffee like i tried it it's pretty decent actually uh, <laughs> i and- can just imagine like a crowd of people like waiting like holding their breath as he like takes a sip of like espresso or something right and being like i approve and then they all <laughs> well it's 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 also not the only time where the pope has had like ultimate say over yeah. over a beverage um have you ever heard of of uh trappists ale no um, it's it's this beer that's made by belgian monks okay and it's this really specific recipe they've been making it for for centuries and centuries the exact same way from the exact same spring all of this stuff it actually uh, recently changed a little bit, but but it, it was it was hundreds of years before it changed, and the reason it got approved was during Lent these monks would fast like very very strictly, mm-hmm. but they need some sort of caloric intake, right? And they also need some income for their abbey. Yeah. And at one point they came up with this idea of like, well, why don't we make beer? Beer is actually really kind of heavy on calories you can get by technically on just drinking beer (laughs) and you can sell it to people around like any surplus you can you can sell it to locals but you know it's alcoholic so they weren't sure if it was going to be okay so they sent a batch of this trappist ale to the pope and said listen this is what we're using it for but like we feel a little bit bad that we're enjoying it right so is this okay but the keg hadn't sealed properly. Oh. And the beer had spoiled. Uh-oh. And the Pope tried it. And he went, oh, you guys want to drink this? Fine, whatever. You're punishing <laughs> yourself way more than you need to. Yeah, go Jesus ahead. Jesus says cheers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he approved it. And the, the, the monks were like, really? 
<laughs> great okay we're we're in the clear oh yeah, this that's is, hilarious that's that's <laughs> early modern uh europe for you everything has to be greenlit by the pope oh man and so tea was approved as well i mean it was a it's hot water with some leaves thrown in what do you want yeah but yeah as i said it didn't really get that popular other than you know some some trendiness in the netherlands and portugal seemed to like it okay and and that was about it until britain got its hands on it since we just hit britain plus t uh mm. we're gonna be diving a little bit deep so i think this is probably a good place to take a quick break all right and we come back and when we come back we'll uh talk about the beginning of a centuries long love affair <laughs> sounds good <laughs> We're back on HI101 here with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. Hi. And we have been talking about the slow introduction to Europe tea. of tea. <laughs> yeah. Britain. You'd think that they would be kind of the first ones to hop on it based on sort of cultural yeah. stereotypes. I was actually waiting for you to mention them and I was like, nope, he hasn't mentioned it yet. He hasn't mentioned it yet. Mm. Britain was really into coffee when it first started up. Okay. Very into coffee. And what's more, they had a pretty solid lock on a way to get coffee quickly um, and cheaply, which is a little bit counterintuitive. But the island of Ceylon, which is kind of famous for the type of cinnamon, but is better known today as uh, Sri Lanka, Mm -hmm. had been appropriated by the uh the british east india company okay uh the british east india company has a a long and very interesting history but basically the idea behind the company was they were given a government mandate to create a trade monopoly with everything in the east and the idea there was that they could pool all their resources and be far more effective at procuring things that that were very expensive and protect them more effectively, specifically spices. That was really where it started out. Mm -hmm. And they figured out relatively early on that the way that India was set up, they could kind of establish outposts there and then eventually factories there and even plantations there by getting in cozy with the local leaders and either extracting land as as favors mm-hmm. uh, from these people or else purchasing land. Right. And once they were there, they were very good at kind of exerting influence until they could basically do whatever they wanted. And as they were still making inroads into uh, the Indian subcontinent, they more or less had Ceylon locked down. And Ceylon was perfect for growing coffee. They had brought coffee plants there and they were just growing coffee there like crazy. Right. And they could kind of cut out the middleman just by sailing a little bit further to get it from Ceylon. So they were more or less sorted out when it came to caffeinated beverages. British coffee houses started carrying tea in the 1650s, but more as like a like a luxury thing, like a like a novelty. Right. Uh, it wasn't terribly common, but you could get a cup of tea. So would it have been rather expensive then? Yeah, in general, it was quite expensive. Mm -hmm. And then something happened, which is a very common story in terms of uh, a people's adoption of a new type of food. In 1662, Charles II married a Portuguese princess named Catherine of Braganza. And as part of her dowry, there was a single chest of tea Hmm. sent with her because she was a tea addict she mm-hmm. drank a ton of tea and it was basically sent along to keep her happy yeah and the british people went so tell me more about this tea <laughs> the royals are drinking it yeah where do i get some and yeah it's it's this funny thing with foods where everyone's heard this version of the the potato not necessarily being adopted terribly well and then the the German prince of some sort, or you know, I've, heard, I've heard it in like five different locations, growing them in a garden and putting up a wall and putting guards there, but telling them not to stop anyone who steals it out of the garden. And then right. all of a sudden, everyone wants it. And it's the new big thing. 
sometimes when you tell people, hey, this is great, they just don't listen to you. But if they see people that they respect or admire yeah. or even envy, if they make it something, like an exclusive or create like an allure. To yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly what it is. And so Catherine is, is drinking this tea. The, uh, the the British elite are going, well, maybe I should be drinking tea, too. <laughs> Um, and and it starts really increasing interest by by 1700. The interest had picked up to the point where you could go and buy tea at a at a grocery store rather than just at a at a specialty tea house. So mm-hmm. you could make it yourself at home. Like that's that's the point that it had gotten to. Mm-hmm. And usually at the point where something is introduced to grocery stores, that's how you know it's really become like mainstream. Yeah, very mainstream. Mm-hmm. The problem with tea at this point, though, is that the price fluctuates wildly. In this era, anything that's a luxury good has this problem for the most part. What happens is demand for a product is relatively steady. If you're a tea drinker, you're drinking a, you know generally the same amount of tea year over year. Mm-hmm. And generally, the number of tea drinkers increases at a pretty predictable rate. But you're sailing this tea all the way from China. And sometimes there are really bad storms and a lot of ships capsize and lose cargo. And sometimes a whole bunch of people get into the business at the same time going, wow, tea is really lucrative right now. And the market is flooded. Mm -hmm. And the price, because of the, the, the hugely varying supply, it swings wildly. So you're, you're anywhere from, you know, at that, at that time, uh, three pounds per pound of tea to five pence per pound of tea, which is just an outrageous range. Yeah. That's sort of where the, the East India Company comes into things, where they start sort of holding excess tea to try not to flood the market so badly, to try mm-hmm. and regu- uh, to, to normalize the price of tea. And they eventually kind of manage to get a, a handle on it after they've built up fairly sizable reserves but it takes them a while to to get in on that what's more because it's considered such a luxury and because initially it targets mainly the upper class there's massive taxes placed on tea anything that's a luxury at this point in britain is is taxed fairly heavily but tea for some reason seems a little bit outrageous just because you know it's not that expensive compared to a lot of spices for example on the market right and a lot of people where they would see spices as being a, you know, every once in a while thing. I mean, they're, they're getting addicted. They want tea every day. Mm-hmm. And to tax something that's an everyday item rather than a true luxury item or what they would consider a true luxury item seems just like a little bit unreasonable to a lot of people. And up until this point, uh, green tea is definitely the most common tea that's that's consumed in Britain. Mm-hmm. The thing about green tea, though is if you brew green tea too long, it doesn't taste that good. Yeah. It's it's really easy to overbrew it. And if the water's too hot, it can really taste like it can taste pretty bad as well. Yeah, there's kind of a balance that you have to strike there. There's definitely a subtlety to it. Yep. That's not necessarily translated over thousands of kilometers mm-hmm. bringing it from China. That knowledge isn't necessarily transferred along with the leaf. And that sort of fine balance that comes with green teas is ends up being a bit of a detriment to it. Black teas, which are a little bit more forgiving in terms of how long they're brewed, surpass green teas in popularity by 1720 or so. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. The uh the tea trade is 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 kind of interesting because part of it is this this um public interest after uh, tea is interest is is introduced in the uh, in the 17th century, but part of it is a little bit artificial because all that they're really trading, all the all that the East India Company is really trading with China at this point mm-hmm. is textiles because China is pretty self sufficient yeah. at this point in time. I mean, China is a big. It's big a large place. country, and it's v- quite varied in terms of what it can grow, what it can produce. It has lots in the way of so many different uh, natural resources that it doesn't need a lot from Europe. Mm-hmm. So mostly what's being taken there is cotton textiles, which they don't have as much access to. And that's about it. But 
what you end up having is ships that are going to China carrying textiles and coming back pretty much empty. Mm-hmm. So this demand for tea is is you know partially public demand, but also partially the East India Company needing something to bring back in their holds. Yeah, and so they're trying to get the public on board, and it, you know eventually kind of strikes a, a tipping point in the in the 1720s. The other trade that they've really got going on at this point in time is with the Caribbean for cane sugar. Mm-hmm. And the thing about black tea is that it tastes a lot better with sugar in it. Yeah. So you've got really cheap trade with China for black tea. You've got really cheap trade with the Caribbean for sugar. Put a little milk in there and you've got classic British tea. Yep. The downfall of green tea and all of this kind of, hate to use the word inevitable, but it's it's not surprising in the least. Yeah, it didn't have a very strong chance given the no. circumstances there. No. As to why tea didn't catch on in other places, we don't really know. It's it's kind of hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw one theory which I thought was really interesting, which was that the places the tea caught on tended to be the places where wine wasn't really a thing. Oh, okay, interesting. And the 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 premise of this uh, of this assertion was basically that tea has a really similar flavor profile to wine in a lot of ways right which doesn't seem super obvious but when you think about when people are talking about the the health benefits of either red wine or tea they're talking about a lot of the same things yes yeah. uh they're talking about the flavonoids they're talking about the tannins they're talking about you know all of these things that I pretend to know what they are when I'm <laughs> tasting them. Um, but but both of those both of those things, red wine and tea, have those items uh, in spades. So yeah, I I have no idea if that's true or not. It may be a completely unrelated correlation. I wonder if it has anything to do with like foods or like popular food pairings and things like that. If you know, like tea became more popular in, in certain regions, along with like creative you know like pastry pastry development or something like that because you've got that idea of like like tea and cookies or like tea and crumpets or whatever yeah as being like a thing and maybe but that's the interesting thing about tea though is that it's it it, in in britain it also kind of develops this whole sort of ritualistic yeah uh air about it the the idea of high tea tea time and all that yeah and you know the 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 pastries to go along with it and the you know the the tea sets that have everything that you need and the little sugar bowls and all that kind of pageantry that that goes along with tea and and again Mm -hmm. that's that's something that seems to just kind of naturally crop up around tea for some reason Mm -hmm. i mean likely because ritual is comforting and and the the ritual of preparing tea kind of fits in well with the beverage itself Mm -hmm. but you know wine is the kind of thing that you drink with a meal yeah or on its own tea like i you know people will drink tea after a meal yeah i I can't really say i've ever seen someone order an entree and also (laughs) a a tiny mug of tea yeah i i I think that would actually be kind of weird (laughs) but it does kind of exist in its in its in its own little vacuum it's sort of created or not created but it it pulled things into its orbit uh food wise rather than pairing with a cuisine specifically Mm -hmm. but i i I really don't know it could be that yeah I, i i'm i'm really not sure but what is certain is that britain when it latched on it latched on hard those high taxes end up really being a problem though for uh, the British public and for uh, the East India Company because they keep getting higher and higher as yeah. tea becomes more and more uh, popular to the point where at its highest tax on tea was 119%. Wow. Meaning that whatever the tea was worth, the tax was matching that and then some. Yeah. Uh, tea got very expensive. Huh. You also had issues where... Initially, the taxation of tea was on brewed tea, which is kind of something that helped uh, green tea take a massive tumble because you had to brew the tea, then have it taken to a customs house, measured, taxed, and then taken back and served. So they would take these giant barrels of brewed tea back to these coffee houses and reheat them from there. Okay. But that also doesn't help things because what 
happens then is people brew tea. The customs officers check that it's brewed to the proper strength. They tax the person. And then the person immediately goes back and waters down the tea to stretch it out as much as possible, right? Yeah. So it's really bad for quality. For sure. Eventually, they get wise to that and they start taxing the leaf itself because, you know, that's essentially dodging taxes, which they don't want to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the the tea is so much cheaper from the Dutch East India Company. And the Netherlands are so close to the British Isles that people just start smuggling tea into the country. Yeah. Uh, There are a few workarounds that people use, uh, such as you only have to start declaring tea leaf at six pounds or so. Mm -hmm. So they would hire like hundreds of people to carry like five pounds of tea into the country. (laughs) Uh, and then from there, set it up through their distribution networks. Um, yeah, or sometimes they just had little smuggling ships that would sail them across the English Channel. And mm-hmm. they'd find some little coastal town and, and they'd have a, a guy waiting there to to unload them and sell this tea illicitly. <laughs> and it's really hard to say how much tea was sold illegally. But once the tea smuggling started up... It's funny because like tea consumption just levels off completely, even though tea coming from China continues to grow and grow and grow. So mm, at one point I I was reading, there was someone who complained that it was impossible to sell legal tea within 30 miles of the coast of Britain because everyone, you know, close to the coast had some sort of hookup to some sort of smuggling ring. Yeah, for sure. Britain was also facing a little bit of a financial issue because the need for cotton textiles was starting to die off a little bit in China. And so they were having more and more trouble actually procuring tea from China. Having something to trade with them. And it got to the point where the Chinese wanted just straight silver Mm -hmm. for tea, which doesn't seem like that much of a problem, except that it's really important to remember at this point in time that a, a, a nation's economy was tied to like fiat backing by precious metals and so every bit of silver that goes out of the country to pay for chinese tea is essentially devaluing the uh the british treasury so they're not too happy about that and yet it's not as though they can stop buying tea Mm -hmm. so a lot of people in britain were really upset about that tea had also become fairly popular in the British colonies in North America. But in the middle of the 18th century, we start running into a little bit of trouble with 13 colonies and its relationship <laughs> with Britain. Yeah. Um, specifically over taxation. Mm-hmm. Their main grievance is that they don't like the idea that the British Parliament can impose taxes on colonists without the colonists having any direct representation within British Parliament, which seems like a pretty reasonable demand given, you know, modern politics and our ideas of how a representative democracy should work. Yeah. Britain, of course, at this time thought that the colonists were just being outrageous and they'd quiet down eventually with the help of some redcoats if necessary. (laughs) And they had been taxing all sorts of stuff in the colonies. Uh, the, The stamp tax is really... A famous one where basically any sheet of paper in the colonies had to ha- had to be uh, stamped with a seal saying that it had been imported and duties paid on it properly, mm-hmm. which is just outrageous. Yeah, and really they were trying to use the colonies to prop up the British economy, which, at a grand scale, that's what colonies are supposed to do in the mercantile system. You don't set up colonies with the intent that someday they're going to grow up into. Uh, you know, grown-up countries yeah. that are going to leave the nest and, and govern all on their own. No, they're, they're there to exploit economically. Mm-hmm. If they're not making you money, there's no point in there's having There's no point colonies. in having them, yeah. And so the idea that the colonies are sick of making Britain money is outrageous to British leaders. Rude. But they've got this problem on their hands. Uh, there's too much tea. The East India Company has been bringing in way too much tea. The market is... You know, they've they've been holding back tea to try and artificially keep the, the prices high. Yep. But you can only do that for so long. That yep. strategy only works as if eventually supply takes a bit of a nosedive and then you can release all of that held merchandise in a controlled manner. 
to control the uh, or, or to keep the the prices level mm-hmm. that wasn't happening the supply wasn't going away and they kind of went well, what are we going to do with all of this the smuggling problem in the british isles themselves was absolutely nothing compared to the level of smuggling that was happening over in the colonies because they were already mad about the taxation on basically everything other than tea yeah they were pretty okay with buying smuggled dutch tea yeah they really really didn't have a problem with it especially because the east india company wasn't wasn't allowed to sell directly to the colonies they had to sell it to brokers in london who were then allowed to export it to the colonies so anything going to the colonies gets taxed twice Mm -hmm. so tea was super expensive and they didn't want to buy anything that was being taxed by the british crown because they were upset over all the uh all the other taxes that were in place yeah for sure So in 1773, the Tea Act goes into place, which basically all it's doing is allowing the East India Company to sell duty-free directly to the colonists. And by duty-free, I mean only the colonists pay duty. It's not really (laughs) (laughs) duty-free. And there's kind of a bit of a misunderstanding about the Tea Act in that people seem to think it's that the British put a bunch of taxes onto the tea that hadn't been there previously, and that's what made people angry. Mm -hmm. That's not what it was. The problem was that they took away taxation on all these other things that the colonists had problems with. Yeah. In in an attempt to placate them. Yeah. And then they lowered the taxes on the tea, but the tea was still being taxed. And all of a sudden, it's this principled stand. It's not about uh, a matter of we don't have enough money to pay these taxes anymore. What the Crown was trying to do was get the American colonists to buy anything mm-hmm. anything that had taxes that had been imposed by the british parliament as a way of basically undermining their whole protest against taxation without representation yeah so they lowered the prices not raised them the american leaders were smarter than that mm-hmm. they saw it for what it was yeah and while the east india company tea was better quality than what they were getting from the dutch uh, smugglers And while it was absolutely cheaper than it used to be, they still had problems with the fact that the East India Company was only willing to sell to certain tea vendors in the colonies, meaning that anyone who didn't get a commission from the East India Company was essentially going going to be bankrupted by this. Yeah. And and they also understood the, the, the subtext of this act. They decided not to allow any ships to land in the colonies carrying tea as a, as a, uh, an act of defiance as an mm-hmm. act of protest all of this is you know obviously leading up to the the boston tea party right yeah basically what happened during the boston tea party was that the east india company ship pulled into the boston harbor and wasn't allowed to dock just like in several other colonies at that point in time but the thing is when those ships pulled into new york they were just told to go back, just go home. Yep. The governor of Massachusetts, uh, a guy named Thomas Hutchinson, he wouldn't let the ships leave, but he wouldn't let them dock. He yeah. told them that the only way he would accept them was by not paying the duties on the the tea that was included there. And the, uh, the three ships that had pulled into the harbor, uh, the Dartmouth, the Eleanor, and the Beaver, they just had to sit there at anchor, kind of going, well, what are we supposed to do? We can't mm-hmm. just drop off the tea. You know, we, we yeah, have a legal duty to collect and... the, 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 well, the duties on this tea. We kind of just want to go back to Britain. Yeah. This sucks. And they sat there for three weeks. And the, the whole thing with, with collecting duties is it had to be done within 21 days of the, of the ship's arrival. And so on the very last day, on the 21st day, these crowds showed up at the at the harbor. There were thousands of people, about 7,000 people, all rallied around the, the British Customs Office protesting the tea tax, or the, the, the tea act, rather. And there had been a number of men left to guard these ships, but it was about 25 guys for these three ships. As many as 130 people, well, men, uh, some of them dressed as Mohawk warriors, mm-hmm. uh, I, I suppose, to obscure their their identities, rushed into the harbor, swarmed these ships, and took every chest of tea that was on them 
dumped them into the harbor. Uh, they, they spilled uh, 342 chests of tea uh, into the water. It was worth about $1.75 million today. Wow. It wasn't a small thing. Nope. <laughs> Everyone kind of makes it into this whole like, well, okay, so they dumped some tea in that. No, this was a major economic blow. This was and a the huge fish discovered statement. caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> it was a huge statement. It, it it was, and it was also a very deliberate one. It was it was one that was uh, extremely calculated, and had a very clear message to the British government. And of course, you know, three years later, we have the the uh, colonies declaring independence and, mm-hmm. and the Revolutionary War stemming from that. But this act was uh, one of the most symbolic and important ones before the actual Declaration of Independence itself. The trade of tea had become so important to Britain at this point that something like dumping tea into the harbor actually meant something. Whereas yeah. if it was a ship full of bolts of cloth they would kind of be like uh okay pay us back for those i guess what are you guys doing (laughs) it it meant more than just the monetary damages it was it was about political control yeah it was very much a deliberate symbolic gesture towards them exactly tea really lost its popularity in the united states it was Mm -hmm. considered unpatriotic after this point (laughs) and pretty much the entire country switched to coffee so (laughs) that's a big reason that tea ends up actually not terribly popular in the united states Mm -hmm. um at least compared to to coffee yeah well yeah and 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 certainly not compared to um britain which uh it shares a lot of cultural things with yeah tea was symbolic enough of british culture that it was completely abandoned during the revolutionary war Mm -hmm. meanwhile the tea tax in britain itself is still causing just as many problems the the smuggling had just continued to increase up to the point where they had had, you know, break-ins into uh, custom house holding areas to to snatch um, tea that had been appropriated by customs officials to sell on the re- to resell on the black market. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had gotten quite brazen. The prime minister at the time, uh, William Pitt the Younger, in 1784, basically went, "Look, this is this is not working out for us." He passed a motion that reduced the the taxes on tea from that 119% we talked about mm-hmm. uh, to 12.5%. Okay. Which is much more reasonable. <laughs> Legal tea consumption doubled overnight. Oh, really? It essentially, it completely ended the smuggling trade because there was no more profit in it, yeah. really. Yeah, there's like no point anymore. Everyone was willing to pay the little bit of tax on tea compared to what it had been before. And they more than made up like they they more than made up the amount of tax revenue on tea within a few years at 12 and a half percent because it had gone from about five million pounds of tea consumed by the nation per year before to about 23 million pounds Mm -hmm. of legal tea consumed (laughs) per year wow they made their money back no problem yeah and now we have no more Dutch pirates sailing into little inlets no with their pirates. boats full of tea. Yeah. That being said, their tea troubles were not over. In 1793, Emperor uh, Chan Long wrote to George III and basically told him, you know what? China's pretty great. We have everything we need here. <laughs> I don't know why we're still messing around with this whole you're bringing us cotton cloth to pay for tea. It's not working for us. We know you need tea. We don't need your cloth. From this point on, we will not be trading tea for anything but silver. No offsetting costs with anything else. Silver for tea. That's it. And again, it's a problem because Britain was kind of running out of silver. Mm -hmm. It was to the point where they were taking their gold, which they had more of and was more valuable uh, in, in Europe... They were taking their gold, using it to buy silver from other nations on the continent just to buy tea with. From China, yeah. Which is a recipe for economic disaster and national yeah. crisis. So Britain went, okay, what are we going to do about this? we got to come up with something. And fortunately, there was something that China didn't really have as much of as it would like to have. Opium. Hmm. Chinese demand for opium started spiking at the end of the 18th century, 
quite quickly. Opium had been known for a very long time for its medicinal applications. It's quite good for a number of things, pain management being the, the main one. Yeah. But it had always been taken orally. It was something that you, you, you ate or drank. Mm-hmm. People in China had figured out that if you took opium and mixed it with tobacco mm-hmm. and smoked it, that it was far faster acting yeah. and far more potent. And people really liked opium, it turned out. A lot of people were really into opium. Yeah. And the British went, you know what? Anywhere you can grow cotton, basically, you can grow opium. Yep. And all of those little factories and little plantations and things in India, which up to this point had been doing a lot of cotton, a lot of indigo, things like that, Mm -hmm. were prime growing areas for opium. And they went... I think we can maybe turn this whole thing around. Yeah. They started producing so much opium. They started producing it on Ceylon as well. I forgot to mention part of the reason that, or or one other reason that tea had started really accelerated in popularity in Britain was that all those coffee crops in Ceylon that we talked about last time, Mm -hmm. 95% of them died to fungal infection. And they Mm. basically had nothing else to grow on that island. Yeah. And so they switched production. Yeah. And it turned out that the Chinese were willing to pay a lot of money for opium. And the, the British East India Company turned to basically going from Britain. They would go to India. They would pick up a load of opium. They would go from India to China. They would drop off the opium, pick up tea and a little bit of silver with it and take that silver straight back to Britain. Mm-hmm. In... The years between 1821 and 1837, Chinese opium usage multiplied by five times. Oh, okay. It had technically been made illegal by the Chinese government to smoke opium. Yep. That does not stop people. Nope. (laughs) It really doesn't stop people. And it was legal in Britain and British merchants, specifically the East India Company, didn't really care that it was illegal where they were dropping it off it was legal for them to sell it and the chinese were willing to buy it so not their problem (laughs) the chinese tried to curb this by banning the import of tobacco uh, which was relatively easy to do Mm -hmm. uh it turns out that people had gotten so fond of smoking opium that they were willing to smoke it without the tobacco (laughs) which uh is turns out is even more potent so hey yeah they were into it yep it's a win for them. It, it yeah, it, it became such a societal problem for uh, for China that it was beginning to be considered like a national crisis. There were so many people addicted mm-hmm. to opium and all of the health uh, concerns that come out of that. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's quite easy to overdose on opiates, and and they were seeing that in droves. Mm-hmm. That and they were kind of viewing it as a. A bit of a moral failure, failure, the idea of people uh, more interested in smoking opium than doing all of the other more productive things that they felt that they should be doing to support the society. Yeah. You know, China at this point in time is, is so Confucian in its ideals of how people should be con- con- uh, contributing to its community or to their community that the idea of someone basically going, nope, I'm going to ignore all those obligations and get high <laughs> is... Even it's it's that much worse than than it is for for uh, someone with more Western sensibilities to do the same, mm-hmm. um, and it was truly considered a, a, a crisis. And then in 1834, the British Crown ended the East India Company's monopoly. They were no longer the only people who could buy tea from China, and they were no longer the only people who could sell opium to China. Ah, which means that all of a sudden the market was flooded with even more opium because every <laughs> entrepreneur. Saw that that's that, that that was a seller's market. Yep. <laughs> you also got American uh, entrepreneurs selling opium in China, but they weren't selling like really well produced Indian opium. Mm-hmm. They were going to Turkey, where the opium quality really was not as good. Yeah. And it was cheaper, and so they were flooding the market with bad opium, which is possibly <laughs> the only worse thing than really good opium. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese government basically went, okay, that's it. We got to do something about this. 
and the emperor appointed a, vo- a viceroy called uh, Lin Zizhu, who promptly went to the ports and seized 20,000 chests of British opium that was waiting to be sold to uh, various Chinese buyers. That's 1,300 tons of opium. Holy. He took them down to the beach. He made a big pile of opium, made sure that the wind was blowing out to sea, built walls and pikes around them to keep people from breaking in and stealing them, and set it ablaze. Oh my god. He burned 1,300 tons of opium worth, I figured out, approximately $60 million Oh my god. (laughs) Keep in mind that we haven't talked about tea for a little while, but this is all because of tea. Yeah. This is because of Britain's addiction as a nation <laughs> to tea. They were buying so much tea that they were worried about backing their currency. That escalated quickly. So in order to make sure that their currency remained in good faith, they had to figure out something more valuable than tea to start bringing silver back into the nation. They turned to opium. <laughs> They turned into the world's biggest, most legitimate drug dealers. Yeah. And essentially crippled what had been arguably the most powerful empire for hundreds of years of world history. Yeah. That's insane. Viceroy Lin sets all the opium on fire and uh, Britain declares war. And here we are at the Opium Wars. Yep. I think this might be a really good place <laughs> to take a break, maybe catch our breath a little bit. And uh, when we come back next time, we'll talk a little bit about the Opium Wars, the fallout of that whole thing, mm-hmm. and what it meant for the world trade in tea. Sounds good. The sheer volume of trade that British demand for tea created, as well as its accompanying economic imbalance, caused Britain to go to war with China. Tea wasn't the only factor in starting the Opium Wars, of course, but this beverage does get a significant amount of the credit. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about world tensions caused by Britain's war with China, as well as new solutions to the problem of how to get affordable tea for the nation. That episode will be up on February 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. (laughs) 